Hello my lovelies, my name is Chantelle and I'm the host over at Lady Justice True Crime. Lady Justice is a weekly podcast that covers fascinating cases both past and present from around the UK and Ireland. Some of them are strange, many are unbelievable, all of them are completely unique and are someone's story. So please come join me on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode contains explicit and adult content. Listener discretion is advised. All cases and stories covered by this podcast are true stories involving real people. The opinions of the host and any interviewees are simply that, opinions. The credibility of any witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. She told her husband, Alan, that she was going to the store to get some candy. She grabbed a gray leather purse, put on her leather blue shoes and her fur-lined denim jacket, the style at the time, and then said goodbye to her husband and three small kids on the chilly October day as she left her house on foot with her shoulder-length brown hair swaying behind her. Little did they know that this would be the last time they would see her alive. This is episode 36, A Distinctive Ring, Pamela Harris's Story, and this is your host, Genevieve Germain. Just a few items about this podcast. True Crime Real Time is a bi-weekly podcast covering missing persons and unsolved murders. We're available across many platforms such as CastBox, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and many others. Links, information, and pictures relating to the cases or stories we cover can be found on our website at www.truecrimerealtimepod.com or on our Instagram account or on our Facebook page. The links to Instagram, our website, and our Facebook page can be found on the podcast channel description. Photos, as well as any other information, are generally posted at the same time as when the episode is published. Now back to the show. Whether she made it to the store that Friday or not, or how this outing turned into what it did, isn't entirely known. What we do know is that she ended up at the Diplomat Hotel at 72 McDonald Street in downtown Guelph that evening which wasn't too far from where she and her family lived. It was a typical 1988 autumn Friday night in downtown Guelph, where pub crawls would make its way across the one and a half blocks down McDonald Street. Pamela didn't make it home that night. Alan wasn't particularly alarmed, but he was a little worried. On several occasions during their six years of marriage, she had left home for several days at a time. But... She always called home to let Alan know she wasn't coming home. This was the first night that she didn't make that call. 
Saturday the next day came and went, and still no word from Pamela. By Sunday the night, he was extremely concerned, as she had not returned, nor has he heard from her directly or indirectly. He picked up the phone and made the call that he hoped that he wouldn't have to make. He called the Guelph police to report his wife Pamela Harris missing. He told investigators that Pamela suffered from schizophrenia, and she would often come off her medication and sometimes leave home for days at a time, but she always called home to let him know where she was and if she wouldn't be home. This time, she didn't, and that wasn't like her. He provided them with a general description. She was five foot six, about 130 pounds, had shoulder-length brown hair, and was 31 years old. He let them know where she told him she was going and what she was wearing the last time he saw her. She was wearing blue jeans, a stonewashed denim faux fur-lined jacket, blue leather shoes, and a gray leather purse. Days would come and go, and if it wasn't for the young kids he needed to care for, everything that was threatening to fall apart would have. On Monday, November 7, 1988, two boys who were out hunting were walking through parkland by a bridge on the banks of the Conestoga River, about 10 kilometers or 6 miles north of Waterloo, and just south of Conestoga Village. They came across the body of a partially decomposed female. She was nude, stuffed within the brush, with a pile of debris partially covering her. They immediately left the area and called the Waterloo Regional Police. Law enforcement arrived on scene and completed a search of the area. There was no identification on or near her body. But they knew it was a murder. There had been no doubt about that. There was only one thing there, other than her body, that could possibly assist with her identification. A distinctive silver ring on her right ring finger. A traditional Celtic ring associated with friendship, engagement, or a wedding, depending on how the ring is worn. The ring had two hands holding a heart in the center of which was a dark colored stone. This is known as the Kladach ring. The two hands symbolize friendship. The heart represents love, and the crown sitting atop the heart signifies loyalty. Her body was removed and transferred to the Hamilton Regional Hospital for an autopsy. The body's discovery was reported in the news, and the Toronto Police immediately contacted the Regional Waterloo Police. The Toronto Police thought maybe it could have been the body of missing 27-year-old mom Ava Marie Mead, who had gone missing after leaving her job at a bank in the Toronto suburb of Etobicoke on October 19. The Toronto Police had suspected foul play in her disappearance. The autopsy took place on Wednesday, November 9th. The medical examiner confirmed that the victim had been stabbed 20 times in the chest and then bludgeoned in the facial area until she died. The medical examiner also confirmed that she had been sexually assaulted before death. When asked how long law enforcement believed that the body of the woman had been there, they indicated, quote, we're talking recent, not months or years, end quote. During the exam completed by the medical examiner, the testing confirmed that this was not the body of missing Ava Marie Mead. A few days went by without identifying their Jane Doe. The police, neither the Guelph police nor the Waterloo police, didn't make the connection between the discovery of the female body and the disappearance of Pamela Harris until the media started reporting on the ring she was wearing on her right hand. Alan knew it was Pamela. With a heavy heart, he called the police to let them know he thought maybe the person's body they found was that of his wife's. She had been missing for a month, and she too had a ring precisely as described. 
Her remains soon after were confirmed to be that of Pamela Harris. Law enforcement started the task of tracing her last movements. They were able to confirm that she had been at the diplomat in the evening or night of October 7th, and according to a few patrons, she had been asking for a way to get to Kitchener, a neighboring city of about 26 kilometers or 16 miles from Guelph, as she was telling people that she wanted to attend the annual Oktoberfest that was going on at the time. She was allegedly seen leaving the diplomat with three men in the early hours of October 8th after she had been seeking a ride to Kitchener. Once again, this had been a record year for homicides in the region, and her case fizzled out. Law enforcement was to lament that they had no more leads to investigate, that there wasn't an apparent motive in her murder, and they had no suspects. She likely died at the hands of a stranger or strangers. Law enforcement indicated at the time that one in four Canadian murder victims die at the hand of strangers, which make tracking and identifying such killers difficult. By the end of 1992, the police were once again trying to swim above the water with another record high of homicide cases the previous year. At this time, Crime Stoppers offered a reward of $1,000 for information on several cases and put out a video featuring four unsolved homicide cases in the region. The Crime Stoppers video featured the deaths of a couple in their 60s who had been murdered in their home with an axe by the names of Yosef and Persa Gligor. The sexual assault and murder of 19-year-old Jennifer Uberschlag, who had been raped and murdered in her Homewood apartment in Kitchener in May of 1992, as well as the violent assault and murder of 31-year-old Robert Wagner, who was so viciously attacked that he was unrecognizable, coming soon to True Crime Real Time, as well as the assault and murder of Pamela Harris. At this time, a man came forward and informed the police that he had picked up a woman matching Pamela's description hitchhiking on October 8, 1988. She had been hitchhiking on the side of Highway 7 in the Guelph area. He indicated that he dropped her off at the Canadian Tire parking lot on Victoria Street North and Frederick Street in Kitchener at approximately 4 or 4.30 p.m. on the 8th. Alan, her husband, did confirm with the police that Pamela would often hitchhike. The police have not ruled out this individual as a suspect. The total distance between the Diplomat Hotel in Guelph and the Canadian Tire parking lot is 26 kilometers, or 16 miles. And from that area, where this person allegedly dropped her off, to the area where her body was eventually found, is 10 kilometers, or 6 miles. I visited both the Canadian Tire parking lot in Kitchener, as well as the general location where Pamela's body was found. After an ad ran for four unsolved murders uh, in the Waterloo region in uh, 1991 and 1992, somebody came forward and indicated that they picked up Pamela Harris uh, while she was hitchhiking, or somebody who was matching Pamela Harris's description, Uh, off of Highway 7 while she was hitchhiking on the 8th of October. This person indicated that he dropped her off at the Canadian Tire in the Canadian Tire parking lot on the 8th of October, and she was last seen at around 4 p.m. This Canadian Tire is located on um, Victoria Street North and Frederick Street in Kitchener. It is... Maybe it's just off the highway. It's just off Highway 7. So as soon as you get off the highway exit, it's a very short distance away from that exit. 
um, on Victoria Street North. And to be honest, it's only maybe 10 minutes away from where her body would ultimately be discovered. It's uh, quite traveled right now. I'm here on a Sunday and it's uh, 5.30 p.m. Obviously, it, there's no, it's dark because of the time of year, but um, October wouldn't have been that much of a difference uh, between now and when she went missing. So either she was either dropped off at 4.30 in the morning or she was dropped off at 4.30 p.m. I've seen p.m. in the articles, but I'm also uh, on the fence with that one. I wasn't able to get a clear indication because she was seen uh, just after midnight in Guelph uh, looking for a ride to Kitchener because she wanted to attend Oktoberfest. So we're here. It would have been dark at the same time. Now, obviously, the amount of traffic uh, would have been significantly different depending on the time of day. But uh, again, this was in 1988. So the uh, traffic also would have been different and there would have been no CCTV at that time either um, like we would have now. It's unknown if the story with regards to her being dropped off in Kitchener was corroborated in any kind of way. Um, I believe that the person is that gave that tip that said that came forward to say that he dropped her off here, that he picked her up hitchhiking. He's still considered a suspect. Obviously, nobody has been completely ruled out as of yet. However, there may be some uh, DNA evidence or forensic evidence that can be rerun. And that's the information that I was hoping to get from the Waterloo police. Okay, I'm on location. Um, hopefully the audio turns out okay. It's quite a bit windy today. And um, there's a lot of down trees. Um, but... This area was actually a little bit difficult for me to find, and I don't think that I'm in the exact location um, where Pamela's body was found, but um, from all indications, it was a park at close to the Conestoga River between uh, Waterloo and Conestoga Village, um, which is in and around the scenic area of... Uh, St. Jacob as well as in that area. So it's kind of in between, um, it's just south of, just south of Woolwich Village and um, off of Northfield's kind of area. So, like I said, um, I'm not from this general area, so it's not really known to me. So I've, I've got in this area, is a little bit harder for me to find. Seems as though whoever put her body here would have known about this location. It was a well-known place uh, from what it says here. Sorry, just a minute. I don't want to fall. Um, it said it was a well-known location for hunters and fish, fisher, uh, fishers and uh, like people who went fishing. And um, just even some trails and some general picnicking. So, it's quite pretty um, and calm, but there's 
uh, the area where she was found uh, was an area of brush closer to uh, the riverbank, or not too far off um, the riverbank, closer to a bridge. So, and she was found under a pile of debris. Um, but this is the general area, and uh, if you'll see the accompanying photographs, I'm going to show kind of where the general area is in comparison to where she was on the 7th of October, where she hitchhiked to, where she was allegedly dropped off, and then ultimately um, where her body was discovered. The area where Pamela's body was ultimately dumped by her killer or killers is a known area to locals. It's often visited by hunters and people fishing from the area. It wasn't the easiest spot to find, even with the details that I had. A reasonable person could assume that the perpetrator was familiar with this location, had likely visited before, and was probably a Woolwich, Kitchener-Waterloo, or St. Jacob's area resident. The police had not confirmed if Pamela was sexually assaulted and killed at this location where her body was discovered, or if she was killed elsewhere and this was a secondary crime scene. What is known is that there was clear evidence of decomposition, meaning that she was likely killed and dumped shortly after she had gone missing, which was during a 24-hour period on October 8, 1988. Pamela was stabbed 20 times to the chest and beaten in the head and face with a blunt object. According to local media, no murder weapon was found on scene. Police have indicated that there is forensic evidence on file, however, they're not willing at this time to divulge what types of evidence are on file and if any of it is perpetrator DNA. At the time of Pamela's murder, the fall of 1988, the use of DNA had not yet been used for investigative purposes in Ontario. The first forensic use of DNA in Canada took place in 1987 in Edmonton, Alberta, in the case of the spandex rapist, who was a serial rapist in Edmonton. But the sample was deemed to be too small to give a reliable result, and the offender was acquitted. Curiously, though, he ended up being charged 20 years later to a different sexual assault cold case in the province. The first conviction in Canada using DNA evidence was in 1989, almost a year after Pamela was murdered. This was in Ottawa. The DNA evidence aided in the conviction of 32-year-old Paul McNally, who ended up pleading guilty to sexually assaulting a 68-year-old woman in her home. The medical examiner stated that Pamela Harris had been sexually assaulted before her death. Law enforcement could potentially have forensic biological evidence resulting from this act, and depending on how this evidence would have been stored, would determine if it's viable after 30 plus years. It wouldn't be until 1995 that law would pass, that's Bill C-104, that would allow the police the right to take DNA samples from individuals convicted of serious crimes, including sexual assault and murder. After this law would be passed, it would be another five years before a databank of DNA samples would be created. The National DNA Databank was created by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP, in the year 2000. There are two main parts to the databank. The first is DNA profiles of individuals convicted of serious crimes, known as the Crime Offender Index. The second separate part is DNA that's collected from various crime scenes. The DNA profiles within the Crime Offender Index don't show the offender's names. They're shown as barcodes, which ensures that there's no risk of bias. The barcoded DNA samples from each section are then compared to one another, and if there are any matches, it gets sent back to the investigator. 
A separate computer network called CODIS links this information, allowing different police forces through Canada to find and share information, making it easier to connect multiple crime scenes from different region, and if the perpetrator's DNA profiles in the databank, then linking them to specific crimes. As for the Waterloo region itself, in addition to being able to access the National DNA Databank in 2000, they started using a software called PowerCase in 2002. PowerCase is a case management software and it's used by many police forces and investigative firms. All major cases such as homicides and sexual assaults are stored in a central repository. Every time new info is added, the software completes a search against its own databank to see if it matches against any other case data, making it easier to connect cases from different jurisdictions. These connections are not just based on DNA profiles. And based on the connections made and the program itself, new lines of inquiry are created, which are then assigned to different individuals within the task force based on their role in the specific line of inquiry. It also tracks how long somebody actually takes to complete that task. With these types of software, the more information you put into them, the better they work. When first being implemented, all new investigative details would be entered into the major case management system. And the goal was then to also input all cold cases into the software as well. Now, we haven't received confirmation from the Waterloo Regional Police, although specifically asking for this, that Pamela's case has been entered into the system. Several questions were asked by this podcast to the Waterloo Regional Police, and despite several calls indicating that they would do their best to answer the basic queries that we were asking, they haven't gotten back to us. We even followed up a few times after them saying they'd get back to us and still nothing. It's now been more than two months since we first reached out. This makes me question whether her case has in fact been added to the major case management software. In 2005, the Waterloo police had 10 homicide detectives. They were looking to double this number by 2008, which they divided into four teams. Each team was assigned a cold case to review when they had the time to do so, including sending out forensic evidence for analysis. In 2005, the Waterloo Regional Police had 15 unsolved murders dating back to 1972. There has been no indication of how frequently any forensic evidence gets retested within each cold case, or even how frequently a cold case even gets looked at. Law enforcement has not confirmed to the media about the type of forensic evidence that they may have in Pamela Harris's case, or whether the forensic evidence on her case is viable. Advances in DNA technology and other investigative techniques increase the odds of solving this case. It's been 32 years since the rape and murder of Pamela Harris. Her husband is still haunted by not knowing what happened to her and not getting the justice she deserves. His only hope now is that this will be resolved before he dies for his sake and for the sake of their three children who grew up without their mother. Anyone with information with regards to the assault and murder of Pamela Harris can call the Waterloo Regional Police at 519-570-9777, that's 519-570-9777, or Crime Stoppers. Remember, the Supreme Court of Canada guarantees anonymity when you submit a tip to them. Tips can be provided by phone, by calling 1-800-222-8477, that's one 800 222-8477 or online at www.waterloocrimestoppers.com That's www.waterloocrimestoppers.com
Hey, it's been a while. Um, not really much to add on this case. This is a case that actually came about from a listener request. And, um, you know, I, I, I did put off finishing this episode from um, trying to get the information from the Waterloo Regional Police, but ultimately, um, despite numerous attempts and at one point a promise, I shouldn't say a promise, a basically a promising conversation that, you know, this case is important and they want to make sure they give that information and um, basically, you, you know, I haven't heard back and I had called a couple more times and emailed a couple more times and I just didn't get a response. So um, we put this episode out today. Now, this week, actually, we were supposed to cover the case of another uh, Waterloo area, region, Waterloo regional area uh, cold case on um He's actually a Brantford resident, and it's on uh, Robbie Wagner. So he's actually, I have a meeting um, with a party this weekend, so um, that will not be recorded, but uh, it's vital for some additional information. Uh, so that is actually, everything's already been prepared. I visited locations and took the um, audio for that. If you guys happened to see when I tried to do a live thing on Facebook for the first time and it ended up being a disaster, um, that's what was going on that day. But um, anyways, that's going to be um, shortly after uh, shortly after my meeting on Saturday. And then I can um, finalize and refinalize um, the episode and then we can record it and have it edited. So that should be, um, not too much further after Saturday anyways. Um, so that being said, um, that's pretty much it. I don't have a significant amount of additional information. I can tell you what I asked the Waterloo Regional Police. I mean, you know, in 2005, uh, they said, in 2005, they still hadn't put Pamela into that power case. I know 2005 is a long time. It was 15 years ago. So hopefully from then until now they did. But um, they got it in 2002. And there just seems to be a constant short staff issue. Because to be, to be, um, to be frank, and this is my own, my interpretation, and you can take it as you will. You don't have to take my word for it. But um Basically, in this general region, in the last, oh, I gotta say, five years, at least, at least, probably a smidge more, but uh, in the last five years, the um, well, there are a lot of people moving outside of the Greater Toronto area, and the Greater Toronto area includes Toronto and its suburbs, which is uh, Etobicoke, um, and jeez, uh, oh, it's like Scarborough and that. Um, and so there's kind of like a perimeter around what's considered the greater Toronto area. So the suburbs, and then there's the greater Toronto area, which is, you know, Mississauga, Hamilton, um, uh, Halton Hills, I think is part of it. So, and there's other areas around on the, um, on the east side. Anyways, I'm, I'm so, I am so tired guys. So please forgive me. Um, in any case, 
That being said, the housing costs are have skyrocketed. I mean, they were always high. Don't get me wrong, but um, it's very it's very much difficult for new people to get into the market because they can't afford a million dollar home. That's you know, or a million dollar condo downtown. That's really not that big. I not that big. So what people are doing that have families and whatnot is they're moving further and further out of the GTA unless, you know, to get into the market unless they've been, you know, in the market or, or they've been in the market for a while and they sell their, you know, Mississauga home for 1.2 million and then they can move to Waterloo region or wherever, Cambridge and um, somewhere close to one of the 400 series highways or the four, yeah, the one of the 400 series highways, and then they can easily commute and by easily. I mean, they can hop on the highway easily, but it, there's a lot of traffic. Anyway, um, that's just to say about the highway infrastructure. I don't know. That being said, um, more and more people are moving to certain areas and the regional police, the it's regional. So it's not one city police. It's that Waterloo region. So there's Cambridge, there's Kitchener, Waterloo, there's, you know, I think like St. Jacob's, well, which kind of area. Um, but more and more people are moving there. And that means more and more crime. Ultimately, if you're looking at like a crime index, like a crime rate percentage. If your populace grows, then your crime increases. The percentage might stay the same, but obviously you have more cases. That being said, if you don't have enough um, staff or resources, you're always going to be behind, even if you end up getting more. And I know in the last, probably actually earlier this year, there was a lot of gun violence in the Waterloo region. And one of the things that came back saying, we are hiring, uh, you know, investigators specifically to deal with the gun violence. And those were gang related gun violences and other gun violence coming out of the GTA specifically, um, in links to the, to the greater Toronto area. So, I mean, there's that just to put things into perspective, but, um, out of the, I think I mentioned there was 15 cold cases in 2005, when they started, then they said, okay, let's, cause they had a new police chief then the time or a new person that took over the major crime unit. Um, and he really had high hopes of kind of making sure that they could look at these cold cases. Obviously it's a small detachment. They don't have a cold case specific unit. They don't have people that can only look at cold cases. They don't have the resources to do that. And, um, what happens is new stuff comes in. So they divided their teams up, right. And they each got some cold cases to look at. And it was to like, when basically when they're not trying, when they have done everything else that they can do on a newer open case. Okay. So once they've completed everything and you know, at the time where they might be saying, Oh, I can sit back and you know, whatever, that's when they said, okay, now you've get done everything else. Now you can look at cold case. That's why I was saying there's been no indication of the frequency of how often these cold cases are looked at. And, um, that's really unfortunate. The other thing to ponder is, um, who audits, like who audits their power, like their stuff, who audits that and what are the results? And should that not be public? 
I'm not saying that they don't do the job that they're trying, that they're supposed to do. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that there needs to be some public accountability. And if there is an issue with resources, I mean, I know that ties into a lot of um, funding and different things like that. But if there are, then what are the possibilities of um, outsourcing um certain things to other police departments because one of the things that the Waterloo Regional Police did say is they did have the opportunity to borrow from other uh, departments should they need to and that was one of the things they said that should new tips come in so let's just say for example a whole bunch of tips come in for Pamela's case and I really hope they do but let's just say they do then they said if they are not currently staffed to handle that, um, they're able to borrow from other departments to uh, work on certain aspects of that. And a lot of things, if it's in power case, it also makes the connection. Now, the reason why I was asking if I just wanted to know if there was perpetrator DNA and if there wasn't um then so be it. But they're keeping kind of the DNA evidence um, close to their chest or not DNA. evidence. they're keeping any of the what the forensic evidence is closer to the chest. And I can understand that maybe there's some holdbacks, uh, but it's probably a little bit frustrating with a case this a this old, because at, at what point do you say, OK, what well, we can divulge a little bit more information. And uh, like in the case of Mary Hammond, who was abducted um just right by her workplace in 1983. And they just finally, just finally um, provided surveillance cameras, footage, like of screenshots of four individuals. They're not calling suspects, but four individuals, uh, persons of interest, basically just people that they, that they want to speak to because depending on, you know, how their investigative or leads were or what, what statements they have in file, these individuals might, or, or even if they were close to, you know, an area at the time of her abduction or what have you might have additional information about the occurrence, but it's been since 1983 and they're, and those are timestamped. They're time. If you look at it, I posted the pictures, those are timestamped 1983. They just released them now after, you know, almost 40, almost 40 years. Is it almost 40 years? Yeah, anyways, like 37 years. Um, anyway, I said I wasn't going to talk much. So next week, we are Saturday, I'm meeting with some, some sources um, for Robbie Wagner. And that is not going to be recorded. You are not going to know my source's name or names because that's a commitment. And, uh, but I will provide as much information as I can. Everything's kind of already all written out and ready to go. Um, so it will just be a matter of inputting any additional new information that, that might come up through, uh, through this. So that being said, I'll let you go and, uh, have a good evening. Oh, oh, that's what I want to say for Patreon supporters. Um, Thank you for your patience. Also, as a sorry to you, because I've been dawdling on my 
my uh, stuff that I <laughs> on my commitments. Anyways, we are going to start a mini-sodes um, for Patreon. They're not going to be like every week or anything. It's just monthly. With the Patreon, what we I've already given is an e ebook and um, some just some behind the footage, behind the scenes footage, just something like a couple of things like that. Depend on certain cases that we were just on the regular podcast cases that are not privy to anybody else, only for Patreon. So I am sorry, you are going to get a mini sode. It's a solved case. No, sorry, it's not. It's an unsolved case mini-sode, but very interesting uh, nonetheless. And it's coming out of the Hamilton region. And that's all I'm going to say about it. And you'll hear it when you hear it, which will be probably in about a week's time. I'm just wrapping that up too. Okay, so that's it for me. Um, also, oh, news. One more thing, news. Um, my very bestest podcast friend, CJ, from uh, Beyond the Rainbow, Crimes of the LGBT, and I are doing a special episode where we're working together. And this is going to be interesting because she's in California and I'm all the way up here in Ontario, Canada. But it's going to be great because, um, you know, she has such a wonderful way of, uh, of telling it, this, telling this t the story of what happens to somebody. It's very victim centric. And, uh, on my part, I'm going to be doing some scene visits and descriptions and some interviews. So those will be a good combination. So look forward to that in the next coming months. And it's a very important case. It's also a Canadian case and, um, it's from the greater Toronto area. So, so keep an eye out for that, uh, special collaboration and, uh, that will be coming out in December. Okay. Thanks guys. And have a good night.